sorry, I wanted to try and get a little bit quicker in the first part of the service, but I've just realized the two hoads have failed miserably at that. It's not just my fault, Dad. That was a very long prayer. It was a lovely prayer, but it was very long. <laughs> Children did really well. Um, let's, Christian unity depends on our conduct. Now, now, most of our time this morning will be spent looking at verse 2, but I don't think that's where we should start. I think our starting point is actually verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. As we begin to think about Christian unity, it is really important to note from the outset that Christian unity isn't something that Christians create themselves. No, it is something that is given by God. It comes from God. There have been a, a number of visitors to Grace Fellowship over Christmas and since. And some of them have, have commented, saying there's something different about that church. There's a unique warmth. There's, there's a love. There's a togetherness. Um, there's a joy as they, they worship God together and spend time together. Well, the reason why? Because of God's presence, because of his Holy Spirit and this unity that he's given us. Before Jesus returned to heaven, he said this to the disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And that is our wonderful experience as Christians here at Grace Fellowship. That the Holy Spirit is here and he is at work in and through our lives. Just as he was in Ephesus in the believers in the first century. This is what Paul had said in chapter 1. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Businesses may exist that have great working environments, that there may be schools known for having a really healthy level of respect between pupil and teacher and teacher and pupil. And in both those scenarios, credit may be due to the employers for founding a company on really good values and for the employees for buying into those values. Or in terms of schools, perhaps credit is due for the teachers uh, for, for appreciating every pupil. Or, or to the, the pupil for uh, understanding and recognizing that their academic success will be partly dependent on how much fun the, the teacher is having when they come to work. But in Jesus' church, including here at Grace Fellowship, the creation of unity has absolutely nothing to do with us. We were once hard-hearted, sinful, selfish individuals who never, ever would have been drawn together, but by God's love and mercy. It is God, isn't it? Chapter 1, Paul is so clear that he chose us. Through Jesus, we've been forgi forgiven and redeemed. And now his spirit is at work in us, changing us from the inside out. And his spirit is helping us to make every effort to keep this unity that God has given us through the bond of peace. A peace that is only found in the Lord Jesus and in his reconciliation work at the cross. You see, it is Jesus who destroys barriers between people as they come to the cross. 
It is Jesus who takes down walls of hostility. Without Jesus, without his cross, without the Holy Spirit, there would be no letter to the Ephesians, let me tell you. There would be no way Jews and Gentiles who despised each other, really hated each other, would be seen together worshipping God in the same churches. It just wouldn't have been seen. And without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit's help, we wouldn't enjoy the unity that we have here at Grace. That, praise God, has been evident for some who have visited. Our unity wasn't created by our worship team and the the lovely songs that we sing, although they helped to keep it. Our unity wasn't made by the hospitality that, as a church, uh, we offer, and we have some gifted people that are great at offering hospitality, but those gifts help to keep it. The unity wasn't made or created by the elders, although with God's help we try and teach the church and do all we can to try and maintain it in his help. We have a unity that has been created by God, and with his help we must all try and keep it. I think it's really important to say that as the start of this time in looking at church unity. So more on verse 3, I think, next time, but back to verse 1 for today, and then into verse 2. This is what Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And at this point in the letter, the Ephesian readers, as we thought about last time, well, they're waiting for instruction from Paul, just as we are. What does a worthy life look like? We, we want to leave that life. Now, let's not forget that as Christians, we are saved for eternity by God's grace, not than anything we have done. So unlike every other religion I am aware of, Christians don't aim to live a worthy life in order to earn favor with God but rather because of God's great love towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ, we desire to live a worthy life out of our gratitude towards him. And we know that this involves work. This is what we read in chapter 2. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so just like the Ephesian believers, we were waiting for actions, aren't we, in chapter 4? Come on, Paul, tell us how to be the Christians we should be at home, at work, when we're out with friends. Tell us, Paul, what this worthy life about being adopted children of God, there's no higher calling. Tell us what that life looks like, how, what we, how we are to speak truth, to love our families, to resist temptation, to be obedient. Well, that will all come, but it's not where Paul starts. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, well, he starts with the church. That's his priority. One, because it is the love that Christians have for each other, which will be our best tool of evangelism to the world out there. This is what Jesus said. We know it well. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. (laughs) That's the best way we can share the gospel. We tell them about the Lord Jesus and in our interaction with each other as we talk about Jesus, as we live out Jesus and share the gospel together. And two, it is being part of God's church that will help us to finish the race as Christians. We are called to form part of 
His body, the church. We need to be in a church. We need each other to walk with Jesus. We need each other to learn more about him as we open the Bible together. To encourage each other, to pray together, to help carry each other's burdens. Sometimes we need to correct, challenge each other. Therefore, Paul starts with instruction for the church. And as he does so, it's interesting that his opening commands, I find in verse 2, they're not directly actions. They're not directly actions. You see, he starts with our attitude. Attitude precedes actions. And this attitude for living a worthy life that will help to keep the unity of the Spirit here at Grace and with other Christians further afield, well, is characterized by five qualities. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. This is the mindset of the Christian, to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now let's just think about that for a moment. From a young age, I have loved sports, all kinds of sports, football, cricket, rugby, tennis, athletics, badminton, American football, basketball. I have loved sports. Sorry, Ollie, I know you don't like the American football. <laughs> then as I started to, to work, I came to appreciate business. And I enjoyed learning from various managers, particularly those that were skilled at pulling people together to work towards a common goal. But it would seem to me as I look back at the history of sports that it's really only been in the 21st century, maybe the back end of the 20th century, that any real value has been placed on mentally preparing athletes to perform. You see, when I was growing up, the majority of the training was physical training. And I think in my time of trying to go up and play football, it started to move a bit more technical. Yet today, coaches put in a huge amount of effort to the mental aspect of preparing uh, sports people to perform. And likewise, in business, I think it's really only been over the last four or five decades that companies have really started to understand that the mental engagement of their staff is so important to achieving their objectives. Yet, you see, here is God through Paul 2,000 years ago. Talk about the Bible being ahead of its time First of all, addressing the mindset of the Christian. Our attitude is key for Christ-like conduct in our lives. Today, there are hundreds of books with lots of advice about the best mental attitude to be successful in sports or business. Professional teams, I think, of sports psychologists now because they recognize the starting points for their athletes to perform as being mentally prepared. Well, God has given us the most excellent coach, the Holy Spirit. And we have but one perfect book with all the instructions, the only instructions we need to have this mindset, the correct attitude as a Christian in the Bible. So let's reflect on these five qualities, praying that God would help us to apply them. Firstly, to be humble. And we're going to take a little bit of time here on humility, and then, then we will speed up, don't worry. But Paul says, be completely humble. Also translated, I think, in the New King James Version, 
with all lowliness. And I find that helpful, with all lowliness, because I think the Greek word here is really implying a lowliness of mind. It, it is the humble recognition of God, and I think here, right in the context of chapter 4, it is the humble recognition of the worth and the value of other people. Now, we've already been reminded in Ephesians that the order of Scripture is important. So we know it's no mistake that Paul starts here with humility. In fact, if you've got your Bibles open, jump across to Romans chapter 12. We've been there a couple of times recently. Romans chapter 12, where Paul pivots in, in that book as well from doctrine to duty. Listen to what Paul says in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, again, God starts with our mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, uh, sorry, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Verse 3, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Humility is critical to the Christian's walk with God, to living and serving in his church. It's critical. Ask yourself, how highly do you value yourself? And be honest. Ask yourself, how highly do you value your brothers and sisters here at church? How highly do you value them? Do you see them as equals? There are some maybe that we respect. Maybe there are others that we've had a run-in with. Maybe, if we're honest, we regard them a little bit less than ourselves. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. This is what Paul says to the church in Philippi. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, uh, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value, uh, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, I stand up here today, and let me tell you, <laughs> I am encouraged because you all came. And some of you knew that we'd be looking at this verse today. And actually, it was read earlier. And I noticed that none of you walked out, and that encouraged me as well. Because these instructions aren't easy. You wouldn't go to a motivational talk that someone's given in the world and they would spend all their time talking about humility. But a large amount of our time in God's Word today will be spent thinking about humility. You see, I'm encouraged because it tells me that God is at work here. <laughs> these instructions are polar opposite to our own human sinful nature. You see, this is not a command to be humble for those few hours on Sunday when you're at church and then the rest of the week let your pride shine forth. No, Paul says be completely humble. This is not a command to, to only show humility to those brothers and sisters that we get on quite well with. No, it's a command to be completely humble before God and towards all his people at all times. It's a command that is vastly different to any instruction the world would give about living a worthy life. 
which actually was also the case for those first century believers in Ephesus, first reading this letter. This really would have caught their attention. Be completely humble, particularly for the Gentile believers, because humility had always been looked down upon. I, I read this this week, that the Greeks never, ever used the word for humility in the context of approval. Never. Even less so as a sign of admiration. People didn't seek to be humbled 2,000 years ago, and guess what? People don't really seek to be humble today. You know, as I was preparing, I thought I'd have a little break this, this week and just do a little search online. How do I live a worthy life? What do I get back from internet searches? Well, I had a variety of results. One, there was a Christian magazine that came up seventh in the results. I was really encouraged by it, pointed to Ephesians chapter 4. But let me tell you, all the rest of the results, there wasn't much humility. Let me read out to you one set of results that I got. This was from morningcoach.com. How to tee you up to live a worthy life. One, find your purpose. Two, be able to do the things that you like to do. Three, have good relationships with people. Okay, maybe a bit better. Four, pursue your dreams and your goals. Five, do something for the sake of others. Now, I was encouraged at this point, but then I went in to read what that meant, and that was, you'll feel better if you help someone else, and you want to feel better, so help other people. Six, live in life the way you want. And it had this concluding paragraph where the heading for that paragraph was, we decide how to make life worthy of living, how to make life meaningful. I think it was a good summary of most of the other results. You see, that the world's advice about a worthy life is about me getting all I can out of it. I'll direct my life. The world around me can define it. And everyone else's life, it orientates around my life. It's no wonder we don't see much unity in the world with all the self-centeredness that there is. Even if over the recent years in the West, we get better at hiding our self-centeredness. It's there. It's glaringly obvious. Read the headlines. Whereas Christianity tells us that a worthy life is directed by God. It is defined by the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our lives, with God's help, as we follow Jesus' example, orientate around others, not ourselves. And that starts with humility. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. In humility, value others above yourselves. Be completely humble. It's interesting, as I was looking at history, apparently humility, outside of the Jewish faith, humility only started to be valued as a virtue. Do you know when? after the life and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians went out into the Gentile world and shared uh, the life of Jesus with others and endeavored to live it out with his help, suddenly, in some form, humility started to be valued. You see, we are called to be so different in the world, just as Jesus was different, just as Jesus taught. Here are some words from the Lord Jesus that, that we looked at a couple of years ago in, in Mark's Gospel as he talks about humility um, being such a high value in the kingdom of God. Uh, that The disciples had just been arguing about who was the greatest. And this is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Uh, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, 
Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. He took a little child, the only religious teacher to ever have done this, whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name, and children were the lowest in society at that time, whoever welcomes one of these welcomes me, welcomes my father. You know, Mark's gospel reason be well, you know, a chapter later, James and John say, Lord, let us sit at your right and left hand in glory. And the other disciples hear about this and they're not best pleased. Well, we read Mark 10, 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' humility, he served and he gave his life so that sinners have a chance of being reconciled to God by asking him to forgive them of their sins. And Jesus joins us together in this unity that he gives us through his spirit. And our humility is essential to maintaining that unity. Pride lurks behind all discord, while the greatest single secret of concord is humility. Two, be gentle. Gentleness or meekness, I think, is really another forgotten quality today. Yet, like humility, Paul frequently lists this as a, a great quality, which surely emphasizes the value that he placed on gentleness. And as with all five qualities, we're just drawn to the Lord Jesus. Jesus made this wonderful appeal to people that were feeling the strain of life to come to him and receive rest. And Jesus says himself, I am gentle and humble in heart. Paul affirms this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Paul says to the church in Corinth, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. And it's really important when we think about the gentleness that is mentioned here, it's not weakness. Some people regard gentleness as weakness. That's not what's being described here. Rather, what Paul is um, alluding to here in this quality is, I think, of, of someone who is even killed. Someone who might actually be very strong, and yet all their strength is very much under control. Someone who is master of himself and yet servant of others. Gentleness. Pastor and theologian John Stott says this, uh, meekness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights, either in the presence of God or of men. A worthy life before God is marked with humility and gentleness. Another wonderful Bible example, clearly the Lord Jesus, but it's also Moses. Moses is remarked upon, I think it's um, Numbers 12, verse 3, for being the most humble or the, the meekest man on the earth at that time. Look at the life of Moses to see gentleness. 
Humility and gentleness is to not have a pushy desire to defend our own rights, to advance our own agenda, whether that be uh, church seating, a view on worship songs, how long the preacher speaks for. This is God's church, and unity is kept by those who are humble and gentle, often sacrificing their personal wishes and agenda for the sake of others. Be, be patient. It's also translated long-suffering. <laughs> the moment I think about patience or long-suffering, I'm drawn to Matthew 18. Peter came to the Lord Jesus, and you'll notice he asked this question, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? I mean, maybe Peter would be narcissist, but we know a little bit about Peter. It sounds like he might have had some strife. How many times have I got to forgive this brother or sister? Seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven, I think is actually the truer translation. The point being, Peter, you keep forgiving them, time and time again. I know, I believe, the Lord has blessed this church with patience. And I can say that with some confidence because I've experienced it. (laughs) I still feel like such a novice preparing and trying to preach each week and, and, and looking to God's help to pastor. And you've all been so patient with me. So here's an opportunity for me to say thank you. Thank you to everyone, particularly um, Rachel and where's Jess? The amount of times when I message them late in the week and say, I was going to do this bit, but now I'm changing. I'm going to preach on this. Sorry if that messes up the songs. And so thank you for being patient with me, ladies. I promise with God's help, I will endeavor to be patient with each of you. But here's what I want to ask you all this morning. Just as you've shown wonderful patience with me, will you be patient with each other? Will you? Will you promise this day to be patient with each other? How many times will you forgive a brother or sister? 1 commentator defines long-suffering as someone who has the power to take revenge, but never does. It is characteristic of a forgiving and generous heart. Be patient. Be patient. We move on to bearing with one another because I think these are, this is closely tied to patience. I remember speaking on this just over a couple of years ago, and, and uh, another way you could translate this, bear with each other, is put up with each other. I just think that's a bit better. <laughs> More true to what's been expressed here. We've got to put up with each other. You see, just like in all walks of life, there are going to be some at church that we're going to struggle to get on with. Maybe our personalities just clash. Someone might hurt us. Maybe someone has hurt us in the past. There may be those that just never seem to learn. And we need to not only be patient with them, but we need to put up with them as mistakes sometimes carry on being made. whilst Christ is working in their heart and changing them. Don't forget that. And and as you wait and likely struggle, why not rejoice in knowing that God is also working in you? What is the only way, really, that we can exercise patience and putting up with one another? It's only if we have those people in our lives that maybe rub us up the wrong way. You can look at it as a blessing from God. What better opportunity to practice patience and bearing with someone? 
in the office, we might just say, right, that is it. <laughs> I've had enough now. Enough's enough. I'm handing in my notice. Uh, at school, we may just break away from the particular friendship. They've hurt me one too many times, and I'm not hanging around with you. But here in God's church, let me tell you, we need to be different. <laughs> we are commanded to be different. And don't forget chapter 3, verse 10. I don't know how many times I'll refer to this as we go through the rest of Ephesians. You see, God's wisdom is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And they're looking at God's church and they see his wisdom. And as they see unity in his church, I'm sure they praise God. But, but unity that is relatively easy to come by, or that will warrant some praising of God, any unity is, but surely God's wisdom is best seen and is glorified when angels in the heavenly realms see people in his church being patient with each other, putting up with each other, when in any other walks of life they've been watching these individuals, there would be fireworks, all manner of fireworks. And yet here they are in his church, worshipping God together. Maybe still a few seats apart, but <laughs> together. How the angels must marvel at God when they see Christians somehow reconciling with each other because one Christian was willing, or maybe both Christians are willing to bear with the other, to forgive the other, absorbing and forgetting about the scars, not waiting for an apology, even though they may have been wronged, not waiting for the reconciliation that they feel is just but somehow finding it in God's strength to be able to forgive and to forget. And to do this, we must avoid going back over past hurts or reflecting on bad decisions that a brother or a sister made in years gone by and we just sit there just watching for them to slip up again. Rather, remember Jesus is working in them and is changing them. And allow Jesus and look to Jesus to help you with patience, with, with putting up with them. Let us all remember how patient Jesus continues to be with us and how he puts up with us despite our many mistakes. Lastly, be loving. Love is the final quality and I think it really embraces the preceding four it is the key requirement for unity. Love was central, if you remember, to Paul's um, prayer in the preceding chapter. In chapter 3, he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. Well, what is this love that the, the Christian is already rooted and established in? Well, it's the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And Paul goes on to pray. I, I just want you to grasp more of its width, its length, its height, its depth. It's immeasurable. No more of it. I actually thought when Nigel um, spoke about love in Colossians chapter 3, I think last year, um, he used, if I remember correctly, an illustration of an overcoat. It, to the church in Colossae, he talks about some of these spiritual virtues as clothes. Put these spiritual clothes on. And I thought it was great. It helped me, thinking about love as an overcoat. Before you go out that door, just remember love. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3.14, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. To truly love 
is to actively seek not only the welfare of others, but the wider good of God's church. And I don't think it should surprise us that just as love features quite strongly here at the beginning of this section on unity, well, do you notice how Paul so closes with love? This is what we read in verse 16. From him, this is Jesus, the whole body, the church. So we could really read this. From Jesus, the whole church, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, that is everyone, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Christian unity depends on our conduct. And if our conduct is to be Christ-like, then so must our mindset be. A Christ-like attitude precedes Christ-like actions. It starts with humility, focusing on others, not on ourselves. Gentleness, patience, forbearance, they're all important. And love, love is essential. It is love that the Christian is rooted and established in. How? Because we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. And the Bible tells us that God is love. That's our supply. And how we must pray that our roots go down deeper into Jesus so that our conduct helps to keep maintain the unity of the Spirit here at Grace and not in any way detract from it. Amen. We're running out of time. Let, let me just pray. It would be good to pray, wouldn't it? Oh, Lord God, please help us, Lord, to be humble, to be completely humble. Help us to be gentle, to be patient, uh, to put up with one another, and above all, to, to love one another. Thank you for the, the greatest example in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and please may, um, oh, as we look to your help and the Spirit's help in our lives, oh Lord, please would you change us to be more like Jesus, we pray. And for any that do not know this, this wonderful life as a Christian, Lord, it is challenging. It is polar opposite to the world, but it is so fulfilling. Oh, Lord, even now as we come to remember you around the communion table, Lord, um, speak into their hearts. May they see love in the Lord Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice for them. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll uh, sing a song and then we'll come to a special time around the Lord's table.